CJSW 90.9 FM and CMRU Radio in Calgary. Say hello. My name is Grace Heavy Runner, Buxiganaki, from Indigenization across the nation. I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, Kainai, Siksika, and Bigani First Nations, the Sutina Nation and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. I would like to welcome our special guest, Gits Crazy Boy, co-founder of the Bear Clan Patrol, father, writer, author, and activist who joins us here today with his beautiful family. Victoria or Apinaki. Uh, so my name is Gitz. I'm Blackfoot and Dene. I was born in Calgary. Um, my mom's side of the family, they're from Amscot Pipikani, which is down in uh, Browning. My dad's side is from Lake Athabasca. Uh, I introduced my wife here, Victoria, and my baby, Oday. I want to welcome you all. Thank you. My friends, thank you. I haven't seen you in such a long time. You have a beautiful baby girl. Thank you. <laughs> Joining us live in studio. <laughs> what motivated you to start the Bear Clan Patrol? Um, there's a few of us who have been talking about doing the Bear Clan uh, here in Calgary. Mm-hmm. And um, a couple of years back when I was working with Vice, I did an episode in Winnipeg and I got to meet James Favel. Yeah. Um, and when I went on the Bear Clown with them, I went on two patrols. I, f- I really felt like you're part of something bigger and and something that was healing uh, for the people that were that we encountered, but also for us that were in the community. It really felt like you were taking up this really old role of protection and security um, and just being in the community. Okay. So, so what happened here was I just put a call out, um, and then we yeah. had some other people join up. So there was uh, Yvonne, um, Vin, Musquasis, uh, Cheyenne, um, and Heather. We all got together for one meeting. And we talked about it. So then, mm-hmm. those have been essentially the six. All of us together have been the, the six main people for this. When did you first think about this? Um, I first thought about this like uh, since I met James, and since I heard about it, like. Our, years back when i heard about this uh this thing that they were doing and being curious about it here though it's a mixture of like just seeing the need to have it in our communities mm. you know but I, I, people ask me this and i really don't know quite how to answer this but sometimes you don't really need a deeper reason to do good things you just you see the job and you see the role so you just do it um but we have like an astounding number of murdered and missing indigenous women um, within the communities around here, the reservations, we have our relatives coming in, trying to escape, trying to run away. 
Um, and maybe they just need a little bit of a break, but then they get caught up with some, uh, some really shady people who don't have their best interests at heart. And then they begin this cycle of addiction, or maybe they're even furthering their addiction. So for us, it was really like we, we are a hub for the communities around us. Mm-hmm. People trying to escape small communities, people trying to escape the reservations. And it really was just humanizing our brothers and sisters that are on the streets right now. Um, and really, like, my one of my goals is that, you know, within the forest lawn area between 8 and 11, um, when it gets warmer, kids who are playing, you know, they can stay out just a little bit later or they know that there's people around the area. So if they have to go from their aunties or their cousins or their friends home and it's like 8, 9, you know, they should be inside or getting inside. They, they at least know where we're around. So really, it was just like the community coming together, being a little part of this this bigger whole where the community comes together. And they we essentially save the the community is saving themselves. How old were you when you started your activism? Uh, I think it really began when I first started questioning the Bible. And I went to a I went to a um I grew up going to a Catholic school. So my parents put me into this French immersion. So I started learning some French at an early age. And then they put me into a uh and then I, I just made a group of friends. There was a lot of other native kids that went to these these schools up north in Fort Mac. And then I got to be around 15 or 16, and I really started questioning the teachings of the Bible, how the Bible came to our people. And it was there when I really started questioning why and rejecting that faith and that belief that I really was able to tap into something a lot deeper. And understanding that who we are fundamentally as Indigenous peoples, it doesn't go with the Bible at all. Like, there's this thing about love and loving your neighbor. Um in the Bible, but there, there's also like every, <laughs> my little baby, there's, uh, she likes it. She likes the stuff. when I start talking about this <laughs> decolonizing oh, our does. minds, yeah, <laughs> decolonizing our spirituality. Um, but there, there's, so there essentially it, there is, um, we are subjugated by the Bible. It is a tool of colonization. They've taken this tool around the planet, colonizing other indigenous nations. When they say Great Britain, that title, Great Britain, that's intimately tied to colonialism because it's their great confederacy. It's how they how they changed the world and they use the Bible as a cornerstone to make it spiritually legal and moral for them. So they could have slaves, so they can kill like men, women, and children, so they could um, convert us forcefully. Like in their minds, in their minds, and until just recently in Canada, and there's still a healthy population that thinks that the residential schools was needed to save us. The whole process in their minds at the time was just. Like, that's one thing that we, we, we don't really look at. All those people at the time were exploiting us, they were assimilating us, but they were using that Bible as a core to really break down who we are. And we're in this process right now of detangling all that spiritual and cultural confusion. So this activism really began at 15 and 16 when I was like, this this doesn't make sense. Fundamentally, this doesn't make sense because we wouldn't take this Bible. Um, we wouldn't, like if you look at the even the um, the breakdown of the Ten Commandments, you shall not bring other, you know, other false gods or gods before me. You know, that that that's a domination written in the first three um, commandments. As uh, Nitsitipi people, we believed that there was like different viewpoints and different ways to look at life. You know, we didn't go and try to subjugate uh, or any of our neighbors around us. We might have, like, stole some women as Blackfoot people. You know, we might have stole some, like, horses. Uh, but we never went to another nation to destroy everything that made them them. 
we would ha- we could have these relationships, these early treaties with the nations around us. And it's like, yeah, you can totally pray how you want to pray and you can live how you want to live as long as you're not really affecting us. That's why we have, that's why there's a lot of Blackfoot people that have the Lakota style Sundance or we have the, uh, the headdress from the Lakota Dakota peoples that was gifted to us. We honored that original agreement. That doesn't happen in the Bible though, because you have those first three commandments that say like, reject all of that. This is the only way. My baby's learning like create the Ark Blackfoot creation story. At her age, I was being taught the Bible. Um, we're doing our best to incorporate language into our everyday life. Um, the way that we're, we're eating is like a lot healthier than I, I was brought up. Um, and that's just because like we have a little bit more money to eat a little better. Um, we're trying to like essentially have this idea that like she could be beautiful, brilliant, and smart. And those words aren't associated with white. And I've noticed that a lot, especially with like when people are picking on one another, they'll be like, oh, you're so white. Oh, you got a 90% in math. That's so white. It's like, why is that white? Like we are, we're, we're brilliant people. We're beautiful people. Well, your realization back then to now on what you're doing with the Bear Clan Patrol, how does that relate? How are you putting that forth into your, um, you know, with the Bear Clan Patrol, your duties? I think like with the Bear Clan, it really gets me to look at myself more, um, like on a, on a deeper level of the things that I do uh, and the, and the positive and negative things that come from my actions and like uh, to, to learn from them. Cause I still mess up. Like I'm still, I'm still very human. I still make mistakes all the time. And whereas like before it would put me in a really low place to think like I failed, like I, I totally failed this thing. I, I look at it more from a community perspective where it's like, learn from my mistake. I'm not, I'll be, I'll be clear and frank about all of my mistakes with everybody. You know, and the hope is that like you could have, you could use it whatever you want. You could use it for fuel to hate my guts if you want. But like, if you look at a mistake that I've made and you're like, I don't have to go down that road. I don't have to do that. I have to learn from this person. That's great. You know, I think that's essentially what the bear clans really strengthened within me. Is that, that being that example for like, you know, it could be a really good example in, in the things that you do, or you could be a good example for the of way not to live and a way not to carry yourself and a way not to do things. What challenges did you face in the beginning when you started the bear climb control? Um, really like, even though I had a couple experiences, it's really kind of wading through this, this place of unknown. Like we're constantly redefining who we are and what we're doing. Um, and trusting the people around me who are be quickly becoming like my new brothers and sisters, uh, you know, who really f- are fulfilling this role of just being there. And helping to guide and mentor because I don't have all the answers and I'm glad they're there because they provide so much guidance and support within the council for the bear clan. Um, so when we went out there, it was just like, are we going to be safe? Uh, the proper way to pick up needles, um, how we interact with uh, some of the women and men and, and the people that are in the trans community that are working the streets. Like how do we effectively talk with them, build relationships and not come across as like we're condescending, you know? Um, and Every week that we get out there, we're just getting a little bit better at doing all of these things. And we had a lot of help from Sage Clan out of Lethbridge. Um, I think his name was Marvin. He makes bullwhips. He came up with, uh, uh, I think, his cousin and a couple other people. They came up. They helped us. They were there as a really good resource. Um, and again, it was like one of those things where it's like, from a community perspective, they're like, we've made mistakes. We're here to give you as much information about all the things that we've done that has worked and things that haven't worked. So it was, it was great. I mean, um, 
Yeah, I can't say there was too many hoops to jump through aside from just where we were going to start, how long we were going to be out there. Winnipeg originally started the Bear Climb Patrol. What are the similarities and differences that you can tell me? Uh, similarities and differences? Um, we are kind of starting... It's the same idea, but the Winnipeg... The big difference is like the Winnipeg Bear Clan has been doing this for a while, and their reach is so much farther than ours. They've done a lot of visioning, and they've done a lot of... Um, person- like they've, they've done a lot of stuff to... A- uh, actualize those dreams that they've had so they have like food programs when um the floods had happened and they were bringing people in from the reservations and they're putting them on in gyms and they're putting them in different areas and they had thousands of people coming in um the police actually reached out to the bear clan to provide security for these places so they had to do these 24-hour shifts at these gyms and places that they were sleeping um and they had to organize that through their volunteers um i think that yeah i think that they're we follow the same mandates. We follow the same direction. I have a really good relationship with James Favel. So when I need help, I'll text him. He'll text me back. Or I can call him. He'll call me back. Um, yeah, so the I think the main difference is just that. They're just further down the road than we are. You know, we want to be able to replicate what they're doing here. We want to see what they're doing here, you know? What type of personal training do you have going into this type of work? Uh, so in this, and this time right now of high unemployment, uh, addictions usually match unemployment. Like they start going up when unemployment starts going up. So we are in the midst of a opioid crisis. Like it hasn't gotten any better. You might not hear about it anymore because it's not, maybe it's not hot news anymore, but it's still happening. We still hear about the deaths. We had a lot of deaths this, this, this past season, you know, and uh, we, I have, uh, and my, my reason why I bring this up is because in the midst of this o- opioid crisis, why don't you, if you're listening, why don't you have your docs training? You know, they offer it free at different places. Um, the, to get the medicine itself is free. You know, if you, uh, there's certain places that give you the nasal spray, which is way easier to use than a needle. Um, they offer that for free at certain uh, pharmacies around town. So I have that. I also have a first aid. Um, I've done a little bit of like martial arts training. Um, and other people too have different skills they come on they come on with. So mainly the two things that we would have really are if you have your Knox training and if you have your um, first aid. That's the two big things that we have that we ask some of our volunteers. If you don't have that, that's, that's fine. You can just be another um, person that's helping us try to spot needles. Uh, the bigger group we have, the more safety numbers that we have when we're on the streets. Um, and there's other things too that we're going to be getting uh, more training in the next couple months that we're lining up for our volunteers and for ourselves. I just read a previous article, and uh, you say you're not to judge, but to offer help. Can you tell me more about that importance of that approach? Yeah, there's there's a myriad of reasons why somebody is brought to the streets. A lot of it has to do with mental health issues that are untreated, or uh, there's there's even like uh, some of how our people how our how our people are treated, how our native people are treated in care, how our native people are treated. Um, just in like the, the the medicine industry, you know, how quick they are to give us opioids, how quickly they are to give us like T3s and painkillers, how quickly they are also to, de- to deny us services. For whatever reason, um, whatever reason, why, why a person is working on the streets, you know, whatever brought them there, that's that's their own story. It's not for me to judge. And most people who look down at people like that, you know, 
if you were to go through the same thing that they went through, you probably would just off yourself, you know, because there's so much strength in, in just trying to stay afloat. There's so much strength in just trying to just exist and live from day to day, even if it is unhealthy. And so like I, for myself, it's, it's just to really try to humanize our brothers and sisters that are there, you know, like here, have, have, uh, a toque or some socks or some food or some toiletries um, or a hot, you know, cocoa or whatever. This is, this is for you. Like we, we, we hope one day if you choose to get off the streets and get help, we can connect you. We can connect you to people and services and resources. Um, even if you feel like you're completely unloved or nobody really cares for you, the people in the bear clan do, you know, and that we hope in that relationship that they could see something good inside of themselves that they can believe it and that they can, they can change whatever their, whatever life they're living. But you don't, you don't really get that if you're going in there thinking that they're a plague to society. You know, you don't, you don't get those changes if your, your first instinct is to throw them in jail or beat them up or intimidate them or harass them. You don't get those kind of changes. You know, like I believe it's making that human connection. Um, I guess that follows through with my next question. Can, can you tell me your thoughts on the system today? I think the Starlight Tours are very much alive. I think that there are some, you know, there, there's a really unhealthy mindset from the, the policing systems that we have, whether it's like the city police or the RCMP towards us. And that's really only amplified when in the media as well, when we have people who are like, you know, they, they, they cheer um, the murderer of Colton Bouchier. you know? But at the same time, they're telling all these what's out in people to get off their land and they're like, you have no right to be there. Yet this, this guy has every, this other, this white guy has every right to defend his land. But when indigenous folks don't have to, you know, like we, there's this unhealthy and very sick mindset they have towards looking at us. Um, I don't know. I don't quite know what the cure for that is. You know, otherwise, if I knew what it was, I'd be, I'd be every single day, every single business I'd be trying to, um, I'd be trying to like pass on a message, but it's often, and I say this. And I recognize that it's often put the oneness or onus is often put on the oppressed person to change the mind of the oppressor. You know, it's never the oppressor that has to really look at themselves and think like, oh, this, this is super unhealthy. Um, the current state of this is that no one is going to come save us. You have to realize this right now. No one's coming to save us. We have to save ourselves. That, that's just what it comes down to. Whatever it is, if it's land, you want to protect your land, you go and protect your land. You go out there, you protect it, you get on the land, you protect it. Um, if it's your culture, you go back to your culture. You go back to ceremony. You learn the languages, you learn the prayers, you learn the songs, you learn it all. Because no one's going to save it for you. If you're, you're worried about your language, dying, go learn your language. You know, you're worried about certain elders, go hang out with them. You're worried about them all dying off, go spend time with them. You know, like for us, on the, the, this, one, this is one aspect of just trying to help our brothers and sisters and no one's going to help us. They're, they're, the way that this system is designed, they are content to watch us all die off everything and celebrate us. And this is like the, the crazy thing is that a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of, there's, there's a healthy population of Canadians that wants us to essentially evolve into a Canadian, to stop being indigenous, to just be a Canadian. They look at our lifestyle, where we are at. You know, they see us as products of our own disastrous choices. Like we actually wanted to be on reservations, 
You know, like we actually want to have high unemployment rates. Like we don't want business grants. Like we don't want these things to help change our environment. They see us as like, that's all your fault. And you need to just like leave the res. You need to join the rest of Canadian society, you know, and they're fully content and they will celebrate our demise, the demise of our culture, the demise of our lands, the demise of who we are. So no one's coming to save you. Once you realize that and you can, you can enter the field position and feel completely defeated, or you can realize that that is a frame of reality, but you also have everything within you to save whatever it is you're trying to save. You have, you have it within you. Just, you just got to believe. Can you tell me any examples of similar problems that relate to each other in Canada concerning our crisis? Is there a pardon? More time? Do you think it's all across Canada? Oh, yeah. Or, uh, okay. I mean, if you're indigenous uh, and you have, it's not, you don't, we don't have claims to the land. Like, that's the thing is like, I don't make a claim that our, our Blackfoot Confederacy is our Blackfoot Confederacy. I know that it is like, there's no claim there. So when you're indigenous and you're in the way of development, you're a problem. It doesn't matter what development it is at all. Um, pipelines, city expansions, golf courses, um, dams, companies, industry, doesn't really matter. When you have, when you know who you are and you know you're tied to the land, it, it, it's everywhere. Um, the, what we face here isn't, uh, isn't just unique to Calgary, you know? Like Tina Fontaine can happen in, and, and that does happen in every city. You know, Colton Boucher happens in every city, every small town. This, this is a sick mentality of the colonizers towards us. It's reinforced by their education system. It's reinforced by their policing systems, one that creates and makes and shapes laws and policies. And it's also reinforced by media, what we see in the news, what we see in social media. These are all things just there to keep us down, you know, and, and there's... It just can, it, the, the system just gets better and better and better and more efficient, you know? The, the first, when it comes to colonization and assimilation and genocide, the very first wave is the, probably the most brutal because they have to kill and destroy everything. But after that, after the most resistance fighters or the resistance fighters of the time are gone, then they begin to focus on legislations and policies, land removals. You know, this is a very, and then, like, looking at, uh, you look at Canada, you look at the United States, we aren't the first peoples to be colonized by, you know, Europe. You go Central America, South America, you look at Africa, the continent of Africa. And that if you really want to study colonization, start there. They're the first peoples, you know, the first peoples, this gigantic landmass that's just underneath Europe that gets rediscovered and rediscovered and rediscovered throughout history. They forget that they're even there. They forget these technological marvels that Egypt and Africa had. You know, these gigantic buildings, um, these societies, these cities, these kingdoms that predate all of Europe. Art, music, science. They forget about all that. And then they go and they refine it. They refine these people. And then um, this thing is just played out over and over again throughout history. And that's just the mind of the colonizers. So no, there's what we experience here is more of like a it's just a reflection of, uh, or it's kind of like amplified if you're connected to indigenous communities of what goes around the province, the country, the continent and, and the world. I mean, the story of the Maori people and their colonization, the story of the Aborigine people down in Australia and their story of colonization, you know, it's, it's just the same thing over and over again. 
Thank you. Can you explain some of the realities and past attempts to tackle these issues? I think you I think there's a lot of good intentions that people had throughout the decades. Like a lot of really good intentions and ideas. I think that the wrong people have run those those ideas. I think that it's still happening now. And I know it's still happening now. We have a lot of like nonprofit organizations that have indigenous um indigenous programs that are run or managed by non-indigenous peoples. And the thing about that is like if you look just let's look at Hollywood right now, okay? We'll look at Hollywood and we'll use that to like as a metaphor for the rest of um how this plays out. Every idea that they have for like a native an Indian in the movies is, is like the worst thing. It's so terrible. It's these stupid um, characters that need an outside white voice or white mind to really free them. You know, like every, every movie that's done by a white guy about native peoples has just been a bad movie, whether or not they had consul- consultation or not. And we're starting to see a change in this as more indigenous um, writers are coming up. Um, same thing with like how black people were portrayed in movies. This was like the whole flip. The uh, script got flipped on them when we had like the 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 gigantic box office smash of Black Panther, because it allowed white people to finally see what futurism looks like from a point of view that's not theirs. They can't see like they can't see our future. Like Joseph Boyden can't see an indigenous future. Like it's just it's just not within him. So if you can. If you go this to other routes, you look at the news, like you look at CBC, who's doing a better job with like CBC Indigenous. But if you look at the Sun, if you look at the Herald, and they're covering Native stories or Indigenous stories, it's 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 really bad. It's really it's it's crap. You know it, it, how they label us. It's not a twenty-year-old female gone missing. You know, it's usually like twenty-year-old thug or twenty-year-old prostitute or something negative about that person. That's how they spin that story of us. But if it's us telling our own stories, we'll say like 20 year old mother may have been caught in addictions. That, that's how like, and if you look at programs that nonprofits run, it's the same thing. They might have these ideas that are supposed to help us, but they, they, they don't in the end. Good intentions, but the way about the way they go about doing these things is just bad. Same thing with the people on the streets. You have people that have some kind of ties, may have never been there before, may have never done groundwork. They're good at like talking. They're good at getting money. So they're giving these higher positions. Um, when you talk about like from the law perspective, the idea that you're just going to get tougher with like more jail time, that's supposed to deter an addict. Addicts know that this is the, the, the this is the thing that they face, you know, that they're going to look at it like a lot of time. And when you're in the midst of addiction, it doesn't matter. A person who's about to use doesn't care. They know that there's a possibility of dying from a hot dose or passing out in the extreme cold or going to jail, but they're so lost in their own addiction that these things don't really matter. All that matters in that moment is feeding that addiction. And so when you have that perspective of like, oh, we try to be tougher on, you know, these people, it's like that doesn't solve anything. You might chase them away from one area where they're, 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 they're gathering but they're just going to end up in your neighborhood. They're going to end up in a school, you know, like there has to be a different approach to this. And it's everything they, they produce, they talk about it as if it's like something new when they get on their little soap, when these politicians get on their soap boxes, you know, they're going to cut down on crime. They're going to fight all this stuff. It's like, 
we've heard the story over and over and over again and it's not working it hasn't worked anywhere in this this country anywhere in this continent you look you want like some um a different way of addressing the addiction panama when they started decriminalizing all of their drugs they started looking at it as like instead of throwing them in jails we need to start counseling these people we need to like get them rehabilitated and they found that drug use crime poverty all these things started going down even the spread of hiv started going down i think they were their own i think they might be a third world country but are a developing nation but they are one of the very few developing nations that has like seen an, uh seen the hiv um spreading like cut down so you really have to look at what we've been doing and realize it's not working you know like i'm 35 this, i'm like 36 this year same problems i had in the 20s when i was in my 20s same problems i had when i was you know in my teens same problems i heard when i was like a kid None of this stuff has worked. None. And we just have to realize that there's a different way to approach this problem and a different way to solve it. Indigenization Across the Nation is produced by Grace Heavyrunner with Hannah Manyguns and Spencer Burgess with original theme music by Terrell Tailfeathers. 